Okay. Um, I think I'll uh, go ahead and uh, open us with prayer so the Lord be with you. Uh, Father, thank you so much for all that you give us here at Grace Anglican. Um, Seriously. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for hearing your word proclaimed. Uh, Help us to understand uh, what reality is and what your word has to say about it and to trust in that word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it should be pretty obvious, logically, that if the Bible isn't true, everything we do here is a total waste of time, just, just so you know. Um, the Apostle Paul said something similar, although related. If Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. His preaching is a waste of time, and so is your faith. But we can, we can back that up, obviously, if there is no God. We're just spinning our wheels. And if the Bible is not true... Uh, especially today, I'm going to go over the Gospels. If the Gospels are not true, then, then we are of all people most miserable. But the short story is, I'll, I'll give you a spoiler, that it, it is true. And there are good reasons to believe that it is true. Uh, Blind Faith was the name of a brief supergroup in the 1970s composed of Ginger Baker... Eric Clapton, and I forget the other guy. Uh, But it should not be something that Christians actually accept as being necessary uh, for their salvation or for discipleship. Uh, We walk by faith, not by sight, with respect to the future, because no one, uh, Christian, Buddhist, secularist, Marxist, whatever, no one can see the future. And so everybody is, in effect, walking by faith into the future. It's just, what do you have faith in? And there are good reasons for us to have faith uh, in the proclamation of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I've already pointed out that faith begins with, there is a God uh, who, even based on natural theology, or you can call it general revelation alone, uh, resembles in, in outline the God of the Bible, not every detail, uh, and there is no uh, salvation message in general revelation, but God has made himself clear enough that you should seek him. Today we're going to talk about uh, the second part of the Bible being true. The first part isn't actually in the textbook, uh, but this part is, and I'm actually following the textbook outline pretty closely, so if you, if you miss something uh, and it'll be on the test, then you can go ahead and look in your textbook. But the first thing we have to ask is the same thing we asked last week with respect to the Old Testament is, is do we know that the Old Testament we have is even the Old Testament that was originally written? The answer was yes is the New Testament, and I'm going to focus on the Gospels. Are the Gospels what was actually written in the first place? How how do we know that? It's a little bit different with the New Testament than with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have a well-established scribal tradition. You have a a not singular. There are other uh, Hebrew Bible documents, but there's a focus on what's called the Masoretic Text, 
and textual criticism for the Hebrew Bible is largely a matter of making minor adjustments to that based on other scrolls and particularly on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, We've looked at, I say we, I've looked at it online. Scholars and others have looked carefully at the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly the Great Isaiah Scroll, which is a big scroll, and the entirety of the book of Isaiah except for damaged parts. And it resembles very closely uh, the Masoretic text and the Bible that we have today. With the New Testament, it's a little bit different. In the New Testament, we, we don't have just one exemplar. There are some that are very important, which I'll mention. But what we do have is an extremely large amount, comparatively speaking, of manuscripts uh, of the Greek. So this is a comparative chart when you get to the comparison between uh, other ancient documents. And in this case, we are somewhat treating the New Testament like we would any other documents. When I first made this chart up over here on this end, uh, that number 5,800 was actually 5,600. The, the number changes for two reasons. One is what actually counts as a manuscript changes because sometimes you find something new, but it actually belonged to something you already had discovered. But new manuscripts are being found all the time, and some actually had already been found, but they're in private collections, and they just come to light. So this number is now 5,800. This is not complete copies of the New Testament. This is 5,800, some uh, fragmentary, some whole books, uh, and then some the entire New Testament. But comparatively speaking, and I just picked out three others, if you compare it to other ancient documents like the Iliad, the Gallic Wars, and Tacitus Annals, I had to read Caesar's Gallic Wars and when I went to prep school, uh, and I can always remember the first line, Gallia est divisa omnia and tres partes. All Gaul is divided into three parts. I don't remember the first part of the Iliad or Tacitus Annals, though I, though I own copies of both. And these works are considered fairly reliable. And they don't, the only thing I know of, and it doesn't really have close, it gets as much criticism as the Bible, is the Shakespearean authorship of Shakespeare's plays. There's always conspiracy theorists that, that want to argue about that. And so the question is, if the, if the New Testament has so much more documentary uh, foundation uh, beneath it, why is it that it is so critiqued? And of course, the main reason is uh, the Iliad, Caesar's Gallic Wars, Tacitus <coughs> Annals, don't make any claim on your life. It doesn't make any demands. Neither does the Bhagavad Gita or Buddhist scriptures or, or anything else. And so... The New Testament and the Bible as a whole is attacked because people would prefer not to believe it. I really think that's the case. So it has to be defended. And so we'll start with the fact that the wealth of manuscripts just overwhelms anything else in antiquity. Uh, I'll give you a very quick rundown of some of these and the timeline. Um, these dates could be adjusted and, you know, like four to six years either way. But 
Jesus died and was resurrected in A.D. 33. It used to be that scholarship in the 19th century dated the Gospels very late. Some said well into the second century. That's no longer the case. I'm going to give you dates that are still considered conservative, but now the the liberal end of this would only add about 10 to 20 years. So the first letters written, the first part of the New Testament written were Paul's letters. Some say as early as 45 AD. But by 50, uh, he was well on his way to completing a third of the New Testament. Mark's gospel, probably about 60. Again, liberal dating would place it maybe as late as 80, although even then a lot of them still want to place it before 70. And the reason is Mark and Luke shortly thereafter, they, neither one mentioned the destruction of the temple, though Jesus prophesies it. And the idea here is that if this had happened, it would have been part of their Gospels. And then a little later, you get Matthew's Gospel, but still around 70 or before, and then later, John's Gospel. Now, John doesn't mention the destruction of the temple either, but he doesn't mention a lot of other things either. And and there's historical reasons for that that I won't go into. Um, The oldest existing verified manuscript or fragment of a manuscript and there are some that are considered older but they're they're still under study is the Rylands papyrus this is a little piece of paper on papyrus it's about three and a half inches tall and about two and a half inches wide and I think if I do this I can go to it and this is blown up Uh, it can be read The parts in yellow are the existing parts. This is dated by paleographers. That's people who study old pieces of paper. Uh, Back to A.D. 125. Um, This was discovered in 1920 or so uh, in Egypt, but its significance wasn't really noticed until about 1934. And this is the back of it. And this part, you can see it's his testimony before Pilate. And then the other part is uh, him being brought into Pilate. And it jibes with what we know about John's gospel. Well, why is this significant? One of the reasons it's significant is in the middle of the 19th century, we could say skeptical German scholarship, Late dated the Gospel of John to as, no earlier than 160, and, and some said it was much later than that. And then this fragment was found reliably dated to, to already 40 years before that. And the thing is, is they didn't communicate through internet or email back then for something to get from where John wrote it to the churches, and John was probably in Asia Minor, all the way around the Levant, that's the uh, the east coast of the Mediterranean, and then through Palestine and then down to Egypt would have taken decades. And so this establishes that much of German scholarship, which we already knew, was faulty. And it late dated it for no good reason. And it was unnecessarily skeptical. And this kind of thing has been done with most of the Gospels. The late dating that was very popular in the 19th century and even the early 
20th century is, is actually not really part of anything except really radical skeptical scholarship. So the Gospels are within 10 to 20 years of the dates I gave you, and I happen to think they are those dates. So they were written within a lifetime of the apostles and the disciples, and pretty close to when Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. The next one, uh, I'll just do the, uh, again, I have just a few. I just want to show you some of the highlights. Uh, The Chester Beatty Papyrus, uh, there's actually more than one uh, piece, or it's called a folio. I'm just showing one of the most prominent ones. And then the Bodmer Papyrus, the Chester Beatty Papyrus. I actually have facsimiles of these, full size on actual papyrus, but it's They're in a big display, and it was kind of a hassle to bring in, so I'm sorry I didn't bring it. Uh, This is about nine inches tall. And these can be read, and they're online, and, well, Greek scholars can read them and compare them uh, to what we have now. And then the next one is a nearly complete Gospel of John called the Bodmer Papyrus. That's about (coughs) A.D. 200. And... As you can see, they're in fragmentary, very fragile nature. So a lot of these have been digitized. So that's how scholars access them primarily these days. The first entire copy of the New Testament, well, nearly complete, is the Codex Vaticanus, so-called because it's in the Vatican. It's not in Latin. It is in Greek. And... That goes back to about 300 A.D. That is also in sheets and folios. Uh, they're compiled. And this is uh, most of the New Testament, but not all of it. And then the earliest complete New Testament is about 350. That's the Codex Sinaiticus, which is called that because it was found in a monastery at the base of the traditional Mount Sinai and the Sinai Desert. And this is a big book about this big. Uh, and these are on vellum, which is animal skins, and it's in unseals, which is all capital letters. And this too, again, it's available online for scholars that want to do it. So that's a quick rundown. Now between here and here, there, there are literally hundreds and thousands of partial manuscripts, uh, sometimes complete books and sometimes partial And the upshot of all this is that scholars can take what we have, including the complete New Testament, plus, in addition to 5,600, 5,800 Greek manuscripts, there's about 20,000 early translations and versions going up to about 500, 600 A.D. And they estimate that 90% or more, uh, even if you didn't have all of that, 90% 90% or more of the New Testament could be reconstructed simply from citations in the early Greek fathers, you know, going back to Irenaeus in 110. Um, so textual criticism is the art and science of reconstructing the original text. And you may have heard that there are hundreds, even thousands of variants 
between these manuscripts. And that's actually true, not to freak you out, but the, most of these majorities, the largest number are, are called orthographic variations or variants, and that's just like spelling differences. Occasionally there's a word difference and, and very infrequently there's a difference in one or two verses. The only really big variations, there's three of them. The first is Mark's, the, the ending to Mark's gospel, which Mark probably didn't write. That's uh, Mark 16, 9 through 20, the one that talks about snakes and drinking poison. No one, and I mean no biblical scholar of any stripe, believes that uh, Mark 9 through 20 was actually written by Mark. Now, the part that was written by Mark still includes the resurrection, but it's still a tends to end abruptly. So there's lots of theories of what happened to that, which I won't go into. But Mark 16, 9 through 20, in every modern translation, I don't know, maybe there's some King James versions still around. There'll be a break in the text, an explanation, and then they'll still include it. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that they're right, the scholars are right, this really isn't part of the Bible, so I would never preach... <coughs> from Mark 16, 9 through 20. Uh, it's clearly what they call an interpolation. Somebody added that later. Another one, a shorter one, is Luke 21, 43, 44, where it talks about Jesus sweating drops of blood. Uh, that's thought to be a later edition too. And the, the big one, uh, or a big one like Mark, is John seven fifty three through eight eleven. This is the woman caught in adultery. Now, I just learned last week, that, as Robbie pointed out, that that's actually in the Latin Vulgate. So there's some scholars who think that is genuine, and I've just always thought it, you know, it has the look and feel of Jesus. Yes? I think it's in the Latin Vulgate. He thinks it's in the Latin Vulgate. I did not verify that. Uh, I, I forgot all the Latin I learned. No, I didn't forget all of it. Most of the Latin I ever learned in prep school, and I did not run that particular fact down. But, you know, I would, I would question the questioning, and it's, I think it's possible, but th that is part of the original Bible. But here's the thing. Uh, Craig Evans, who is a well-known New Testament scholar, um, he taught at, I think, Arcadia or Acadia Seminary, which is in Nova Scotia. He said, these passages represent the only major textual problems in the Gospels, and no important teaching hangs on them. Now, you get a little bit more about Jesus, and it does sort of reveal some things about him, but they're revealed elsewhere. In other words, if these things were simply removed from the Bible, we would still know the whole Gospel, and we would still know all about the Incarnation, and we would know every doctrine that we knew before. And these are the big ones. All right, so we can conclude Craig Glomberg and historical reliability of the gospel says this. The consensus amongst textual critics is that in the modern critical editions of the Greek New Testament, we have upwards of 97% of what the original authors wrote reconstructed beyond any reasonable doubt. Whatever you may have heard, this is what textual critics say. These are scholars, New Testament scholars, who take the time and the trouble to go through all these manuscripts and arrive at what was originally written. 
And no doctrine of the Christian faith depends solely on one or more textually uncertain passages. And there aren't that many, and again, most variants are orthographic or single word. And another reason why there's lots of them, if you have one alternate spelling and that appears in 100 different manuscripts, that's counted as 100 variants, not one. So it's a, it's a little bit misleading to talk about hundreds and even thousands of variants. Most of these are very easily resolved. Um, I do have a copy. This is my seminary. This is, this is called the Nestle Alon uh, Greek text. Uh, every major can't say every, but every major English translation or any translation of the New Testament is based on this, although that's the third edition. I think they're up to about the fifth edition. And if you look at it, you, you see the Greek text, but then you see underneath, in some cases, most of the page is taken up with what is called textual apparatus. It's explaining in language that looks like physics uh, formula exactly how they arrived at these decisions and why this is included in the text and something else is not. Um, anyway, that's all I really have to say about textual criticism uh, per se. Does anybody have any questions about textual criticism that I might be able to answer? Joel? What are the methods they use for dating? Is it like carbon dating? Or? Uh, you mean for, in some cases, yes, but, and I'm not a paleographer. I watched a video once, though. Uh, they, they can tell uh, by the chemical makeup. Sometimes it is carbon dated, but that's, you know, only gets you within 50 years or so. Uh, they can tell by the type of handwriting, sometimes the location. They compare it with other families of manuscripts that are dated, where they found it in the archaeological dig and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, like I say, I'm not a paleographer, but that is how they arrive at these decisions. And no one really contests. There are some earlier manuscripts that are contested because they're still looking into this. But uh, everyone places the Rylands papyrus between 100 and 150 A.D. and like 125 is right in the middle, so I'm going to go with that. Any other questions about Textual criticism, John. Well, we know we know John was contemporary of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke were after. Um, were I'm not sure of the question. No, all all the gospel writers were contemp contemporaneous with Jesus, and John was so thought to be the late sixties, early seventies when they when they. Um, those are estimates of age, but yeah, they started writing, well, I guess, when they realized they need to. Uh, th there are lots of conjectural reasons for why did they write when they wrote and who they wrote to, and most of these will be in commentaries. Like John wrote to what is frequently called the Johannine community, which was a group of churches in what's now southern Turkey. Um, Luke was written to one Theophilus, and it's thought that Luke was his audience was primarily Gentiles, who needed not to just hear it verbally, but uh, needed to have a, a written record of this. So Luke says very specifically that he investigated everything carefully from the beginning. Matthew, because of the way the genealogies are written and other concerns uh, that would really concern Jews, was thought to be written to Jews. 
Um, as far as the timing of why, well, I'm going to write now, why haven't I written earlier, or why don't I just wait for a while? That's a good question, but I can't really answer. Any other? Yeah, Robbie. I had heard once that as time went on and they realized that Jesus was not coming back in their lifetime, that they decided we better put this down in writing because we're going to die. Well, I've, I've heard that. Uh, this is the, you know, I don't know if it's early eschatological or what's it view. I do not actually believe. What was the question? Uh, the question was, uh, did they decide to write this down because they were getting old and Jesus hadn't come back yet? I'm not convinced they were actually, they truly believed Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. Uh, I think that's a matter of conjecture, and I don't share that opinion. I won't say it's absolutely wrong, but uh, whether they believed it or not, they did not teach it in the Gospels uh, or in Paul's letters in the New Testament. Jesus, I mean, uh, Paul even had to calm down. uh, was either the Thessalonians or the Corinthians. Uh, but he said, look, I don't want anybody starting to worry about whether the resurrection has happened yet. I assure you it, it hasn't. So just calm down. Other questions about textual criticism. And uh, <coughs> good, I'm glad we don't find out how much I really don't know about textual criticism. This is a very, uh, a very, very deep, very narrow, but very deep subject, and I only know the, the, the broadest outlines. So now we'll talk about the reliability of history. So textual critics, the people who do this seriously, have said that a 97% of, of what we have in the standard Greek text that we use, the Nestle Elan that I passed around, 97% of that we, we are assured uh, beyond all reasonable doubt is what they wrote. Okay, well, I'm sure that 100% of what I have in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings, is what J.R. Tolkien wrote, but that doesn't mean it really happened. So how do we know <clears throat> that this history is reliable? Well, first of all, uh, you may have heard, you know, that the, the, the Gospels are full of legends and myths and oral traditions passed down, but that's not the case. Uh, this scholarship since the 1970s, let's say, uh, probably reaching back before that, but since the 1970s has demonstrated that the Gospels clearly resemble ancient biographical literature. Uh, books by Suetonius, even Tacitus, uh, ancient Roman biographers, Since the gospel writers deliberately chose to use the structure and conventions of ancient biographies, it is clear they intended to convey what they thought actually happened when they told the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrections. Now, a lot of times the popular skeptical view is that these people were just rubes and idiots who couldn't tell the difference between a fairish story and a history. Well, that's just not the case. They knew the difference between history... And you can read some of the histories themselves, and you can see even within the history of ancient, other ancient biographers, Herodotus one, Suetonius, Herodotus was Greek, but Suetonius for another, they, they even go back and forth in their mind, well, this, did this really happen or did people make this up? They knew the difference between legends, myths, 
and made up stories and true history. And it's clear that the gospel writers, particularly Luke, not just Luke, but particularly Luke, intended to write very carefully constructed histories about the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So these things have the look and feel of actual histories. And the thing is, is historical fiction just wasn't a thing. I mean, it is now. I once read a book when I was in prep school, If the South Had Won the Civil War, and it was a fascinating little made-up story, which was written as though it were history. And there's other historical fictions. But that genre didn't exist. And so claiming that they're just making up stories is, is retrojecting our view of literature back 2,000 years. The second thing is the eyewitness testimonies of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are really good reasons, which I won't go into right now, but to, to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are skeptics. And you're going to hear, you might hear counter-arguments back and forth, but there are good reasons to believe that they wrote them. And they rely on multiple independent eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were Jesus' disciples and apostles. Mark relied on the recollections of Peter, that is by tradition, but there's good reasons to believe that's the case. Peter was also a disciple and an apostle, and Luke says Luke was not an apostle. But he knew one, like they were like this, Luke and Paul, carefully investigated everything that was handed down by eyewitnesses, and his historical narrative has been (coughs) repeatedly corroborated by archaeology, which we'll come back to in a minute. The third thing, uh, well, the existence of eyewitness testimony is the best historical explanation for the first proclamation of the gospel, the early acceptance of Jesus' resurrection, and the growth of the early church. James Brooks is a New Testament scholar. He writes in his commentary about Mark, explaining the existence of the early church and the writing of the New Testament without any influence of, of eyewitnesses is almost as difficult as doing so without any influence of the earthly Jesus. In other words... These stories simply would not have been this influential, nor the church grown so exponentially, had there not been people who really witnessed these things. That's what he's saying. The third thing is the internal consistency of the Gospels. I used to tell my students in high school, if someone says to you, the Bible is full of contradictions. Be polite and be humble because you never know when you may. You might be talking to Bart Ehrman. You never know. But say, oh, I wasn't aware of that. Could you, could you point a couple out to me? And 99% of the time, no one can because that's simply a repeated popular saying that the Bible is full of contradictions. Now, again, that 1% of the time, you may run across a skeptical scholar, and they may point out something that at first might seem like a contradiction, but is not. I'm not going to go any over any, well, I'll go over one particular instance, but not in detail, of alleged contradictions that have been resolved. There's one in the book about the dating 
of Jesus' crucifixion, supposedly uh, differences, contradictions between Mark's gospel and John's gospel in the book, which I go into detail. Um, But though they have different perspectives and details, the gospels mutually support each other and the claim of contradictions doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. Uh, And a lot of people really have scrutinized these things. Uh, Most claims of contradictions are based on ignorance, most, not all, are based on ignorance or a refusal to recognize that differences in perspective or details are not contradictions. Like this one, I I don't know who posted it, but they posted it on Twitter as an example of a, a claim of a contradiction that really doesn't make any sense. And this is the difference in the accounts of the Gospels about who appeared to the women at the tomb. So um, there's two angels in John, for example. There's one angel in Matthew. There's a young man in a right robe in Mark. And there are two men in dazzling apparel in Luke 24. Does, does anybody think that sounds like a contradiction? Me neither. But it is a variation in a sense. So if you understand in context that angels do often appear as young men and that they also often appear in robes that are dazzling and white and that in some cases even you might have been talking to two people but you only mentioned the one that you were really paying attention to. This makes perfect sense. This is not a set of contradictions and a lot of the alleged contradictions are like this. The more complicated ones The one I note in the book, like the supposed discrepancy in John and Mark on the dating of the, in the dating of the resurrection is more complicated but still resolved well. Craig Blomberg does it in his book. Let me go ahead and wrap this up. So the internal consistency of the Gospels has been well examined in excruciating detail by several scholars. One I'm going to mention is called Gleason Archer. Gleason Archer wrote this book. There's a new edition of it called Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And he goes over almost all those things carefully that could be considered contradictions and explains why they are not. Now, he admits, and I will admit too, there are some problems that seem like they haven't been resolved. But one of the things, and it was the, the fourth thing I was going to go over, uh, if we hadn't had technical difficulties, was the external corroboration through archaeology. So scholars used to claim that Luke was a sloppy historian and that he got, often got details wrong or that some of the things that were mentioned in the gospel really didn't get their Greco-Roman geopolitics or geography correct. And archaeological finds regularly, again and again and again, as they come up, really put paid to these scholarly accusations of internal inconsistency, that in fact they're not contradictions and they're not factually wrong. Now, archaeology does not prove that the gospel stories are correct. Archaeology could falsify it, but as a matter of fact, it corroborates it, it supports it by showing that, particularly Luke, but the other gospels, 
uh, actually have details of politics, geography, and government that look like the early first century, early up to the early second century, and no later, and that lots of the places mentioned in the Gospels, theater at Ephesus where there was almost a riot, the, the Bema stone in Jerusalem where Pilate tried Jesus, uh, there's, a, there's a stone in uh, Corinth called the Erastus Stone, which is a pavement dedicatory inscription with the name of Erastus, who is a proconsul that Paul mentions in Romans. Uh, there's a Gallio inscription in Delphi, uh, Greece, that mentions Gallio as a, as a proconsul that Paul again mentions. And again and again and again, these, his, these, the, the historical details of the Gospels and the internal consistency is regularly supported by external corroborating evidence. Does anybody have any questions about the historical reliability of the Gospel? Right. Um, I was going to, you can see, I, I mean, I'm out of time already. If I had added the process of canonization, uh, we'd be here another hour and you wouldn't want to do that. The canon was simply a recognition of what books were already authoritative. It wasn't like, let's get a group of men together and we'll pick out those books that we like and we'll say this is what's binding. No, these were the books, the letters of Paul, the four Gospels, uh, some of the other letters from some of the other apostles were already circulating and already considered authoritative. And the process of canonization, which probably began early 2nd century, was simply the formal process of recognizing what was already authoritative in the early church. And it's a lot more complicated than that, but... That's about all I can say about it right now. Any more questions? All right, well, thank you very much for coming.